the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's a Thursday morning. Man, it was rocking and rolling early this morning. I don't know about where you were at, but uh, thunder, lightning, torrential rain. And then it went away. And, uh, I woke up this morning, looked at my color radar, and the big front had moved bomb past us and looked like it was going to be a decent day to drive into work. So I didn't worry about it and uh, got here right on time and I was a happy camper. Hope you were too. Uh, the temperature is going to fall throughout uh, this day. Be a lot cooler tomorrow morning than it has been. I mean, it's been in the 50s uh, when we've gotten up, and it's going to be like 38 tomorrow. So uh, a little bit uh, chilly in the morning. So keep that in mind. For all of my fellow veterans, happy Veterans Day to you. Got my veterans hat on today. And, uh, you know, uh, for, for myself, thank you for your service and uh, protecting your nation and, uh, you know, the folks that live here in uh, this country. We want to thank you for that. We got a special coming up for you at uh, 8 o'clock. It's a great story, um, kind of a tragic story about the USS Indianapolis I've known about this since I was a kid because I'm originally from Indiana and I've been to several of the uh, big uh, memorials that they have downtown uh, for the USS uh, Indianapolis. There's a big monument to the sailors that uh, that died uh, when it was sunk. Uh, What was makes that story much more interesting than other uh, stories about ships that were sunk during World War II is that it was the ship that carried the atomic bomb. And uh, because of that, it was, of course, top secret. And no one knew how it was uh, going out to deliver uh, the bomb. Nobody knew where it was located at because it was so top secret. They delivered the bomb and on their way back, they were torpedoed and the ship sunk, but nobody knew about it because it was radio silence. And about 900 men went into the water uh, dealing uh, with that ship. And I think they rescued a little over 200 and something men. Most were eaten by the sharks. Uh you probably you've heard the story. You probably didn't realize it was about the USS Indianapolis, 
but the captain of the boat that they went out to get the big white shark in and Jaws, you remember when they were sitting in the cabin and he was telling the story about the ship that he was on and it had sunk? Uh, he was talking about the USS Indianapolis. And if you've never seen that piece of that motion picture, you should watch it. It will give you the creeps as he sits and talks about, you know, you'd be sitting there in the dark, couldn't see a few feet away from you, and all of a sudden in the background you'd hear the high-pitched squeal of men as they were pulled under the water. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really uh, moving segment of that movie. But, yeah, a lot of men died with that in uh, in Indianapolis today, I would say it'd be around eleven o'clock is when they'll do it. Uh, they have the they have the big monument there, and then they have the bell that is with it, and they will read the name of every person who died, and uh, will ring the bell as they do that. All right, but that's it. That, that's at eight o'clock. Okay, we're going to do that. Jerry Stewart has a very special Veterans Day show for us right now, though. Uh, if you were watching news at all yesterday, and I watch a lot of news, uh, we found out inflation, you know, wholesale was not good day before yesterday. And then yesterday, the consumer price index was uh, terrible, a little over 6%, highest rate of inflation in 30 years. Um, every This information, as it comes out, the more I think of Jimmy Carter and maybe he's going to get off the hook finally for being the worst president in United States history. And Ryan Young is going to join us today. He's senior fellow at the competitive enterprise Institute. Uh, the research he does focuses on regulatory reform, trade policy, antitrust regulation, and other issues. His writings have been in USA today, the wall street journal, political, the hill, Investors Business Daily, and I could go on and on, uh, just tells you that the man is uh, highly regarded. He holds an MA from one of my favorite universities, George Mason in Fairfax, Virginia, and his BA in history from Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, previously CEI's 2009-2010 Warren T. Brooks Journalism Fellow. Okay. Oh, before, by the way, before he went to CEI, he was with the Cato Institute. So he was over there with the, uh, you know, the folks over there that not, not Democrat, not Republican, you know, they're over there getting things done, things I I have Cato folks on all the time. Hey, uh, Ryan, how you doing? Thanks for joining us today here on uh, this and 2021 Veterans Day. Yeah, happy Veterans Day, and thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have you wrote a little article here talking about uh, what we should do uh, to stop this uh, infl- you know this flammable uh, inflation that's going on. It's not as bad as it was with Carter, but we're getting there uh, very very quickly, and. Uh, as it happened with Carter, it is now happening with the uh, with the Democrats again. Spend, 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 and suddenly you've got a bad case of uh, of inflation. 
on your country and then that starts a, it's like it's like an evil plant at that point it puts its roots out and starts affecting all kinds of areas of our economy correct yeah long run i think we'll be okay but i'm not optimistic about the short term okay so i heard yesterday they're saying not until maybe the third quarter of uh next year and if that's the case the democrats have got a real problem on their hands yeah the whispers in washington i was reading politico's playbook this morning um are that this might end up being fatal to the the reconciliation bill um that congress is considering i don't know if i'd go that far but um that would be good news for the economy if it isn't fact fatal because that's going to add that's only going to add to inflation with all the extra deficit spending explain to my listeners i mean i i try to but i probably do not do it as well as someone like you uh it's kind of econ 101 but it it is a little bit of uh, it is a little bit uh, confusing when the government dumps in this case trillions of dollars into the market it 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 causes things for the market to do that uh, typically it wouldn't can you can you kind of explain what's happening sure um the way the reconciliation bill works and the way economic stimulus works in general is that it does not create new wealth it doesn't actually stimulate new wealth it takes wealth from one part of the economy and then spends it somewhere else in the economy so it's it's a net zero effect and frankly since um the redirection is done not on the merits but through politics it's probably on net actually harmful to the economy and of course all the extra deficit spending it creates has to be paid back later with interest so it might provide a short-term boost if they're lucky um, but not so much in the long run. The long run price is essentially a bust. Yeah, and let's let's talk about inflation. If you, let's say you have inflation, and uh, we'll just take and make it, you know, six point five percent. All right, just to, to pick a number. When you have a debt that is trillions of dollars large, and uh, perhaps when you started that debt, you're uh, your inflationary number or the number that they were charging you on that debt was uh, 2%. Now suddenly it's 6%. It makes things very difficult to pay off that debt. That's exactly right. Yeah, inflation is what happens basically when the amount of money circulating in the economy gets out of sync with the amount of goods and services in the economy. That's why prices are changing, but the amount of actual stuff out there isn't changing so much. What we have to do is get that back into sync. And frankly, I don't see that happening. Um, The Federal Reserve can play a role with that by tamping down on their easy money policy. But like you said, if they do that, that's going to make government debt more expensive to pay back, which Uh is the exact opposite of what they want right now. Plus, there's an election coming up, and you know, from Nixon on down to the present, um, it's Congress and administrations from both parties tend to put pressure on the Fed to keep money loose in order to create a stimulus effect when there's an election coming up. So between the spending bill and an election coming up, I'm not optimistic about the short term here. Yeah, I think if I remember correctly, when Bush was president, the, uh, the, na- the national debt was about... 20 trillion if i'm not mistaken and now we're at what 27 trillion dollars or something 
Yeah, it's larger than than the entire country's GDP is right now, which is about twenty one trillion. How long can we survive this? I don't know. So there's the old saying: if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. And I worry that we'll, we're going to find out that that's true. Um, nice thing is that there are things that policymakers can do. But like I said, even if in the long run we're optimistic, we're we're going to be okay. I don't think in the short run things are going to be very good. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. We'll come back. We'll talk some more. I got to get a break in here. Ryan Young is our guest, and uh, he's giving you some bad news today. I hate to do that. Start off early in the morning like this. But you need to you need to know about this, and it's not good. And we've got to get some things settled and reined in. Problem is, the people that would rein it in are in power at least until this time next year. Let's take a break. Uh, Pat Davis wants you to know that uh, your health plan man uh, wants to save you some money, and we're talking about money flowing all over the place you know, in our economy, one place that it's, uh, you know, that the government is involved in is healthcare and it's driving prices up. How do you save some money for that? And Pat Davis can do that for you. Uh, 30 to 50% on health insurance. Uh, Use any uh, health insurance policy you want. And by using his particular uh, process, you can say 30 to 50%. Uh, it's actual insurance. It's not a share plan. That's not what I'm talking about. And again, you can choose any provider in the nation. No co-pays. And you may get checks back from your doctor, urgent care facility, and even the hospital. Now, to find out how all this works, because it would take me a half hour on the show to explain it, uh, he'll take the time to talk to you on the telephone at 501 501- 605 6935. and they'll be help, happy to help you out. We'll come back, talk more with Ryan, and uh, see if uh, we can get some good news out of him when we come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. All right, back with you. Ryan Young is our guest from CEI. Uh, what's the website there at CEI so people can get more information on this, Ryan? It's nice and easy. CEI.org. All right. Yeah, real easy to do that. Used to work with Cato Institute. You got a libertarian streak in you, son? A little bit. Uh, I'm not really buying what either party is selling. I just like to call it as I see it, and that's that's Generally good. Generally, the direction it goes. Yeah, that's what we got. Well, you went to George Mason, and you were taught to call it as you see it, and that's that's a good thing. Let's get back to what we were talking about. You said we said the first thing is to tighten up money. Uh, a lot of people ask me, well, why is the if it's so bad, Dave? Why is the uh, why is the stock market doing so well? And I always remind them the stock market is amoral. They don't care where the money comes from. It can come from the government. It can come from you or I, and as long as the money's there, they will grow and and they'll get dividends. But this is not the best, this is by far not the best way to get the money because you're going to end up paying more in taxes. You're going to end up seeing that the, the uh, a dollar is going to be worth less. So in the long run, you'll lose money as you keep doing it the way that you're doing it uh, right now. 
Okay, so what was the second? We can we can take the the Fed can tighten up the money supply. What's the second thing they can do? The other side is the supply side. Um, for you know, inflation is when the amount of money, the amount of goods and services get out of sync. Now. I don't think they're going to do much on the money side, so if we treat the goods and services side, we can still do some help here. Um, right now we have about 10 million job vacancies. If we can fill some of those, people will make more goods and services, and that will bring that closer to where the money is growing, and hopefully that will tamp down inflation a little bit. And if nothing else, people will have more goods and services, more jobs, more paychecks. Um, I do not see this as a bad thing. Uh, so hopefully there are a lot of things we can do, such as uh, – these days, about a quarter of all jobs require occupational licenses, some kind of permission from the government in order to do your job, and these can cost. Well, here, here in here in Arkansas, paperwork. Yeah, here in Arkansas, occupational licenses. You know, it's really a problem. I mean, we we beat it back two years ago, but they wanted an occupational license for people to be able to braid hair. Yeah, that case actually made some national news. I believe the Institute for Justice in Washington was involved with that. Yes, they were. It just I mean, we talk about all this stuff on, on the air, and all you're doing is driving prices up when you do occupational licenses because it's the people who are, you know, in the driver's seat, speak, uh, seat so to speak, that are saying you've got to do this and you got to do that, and usually it costs you an inordinate amount of money to be able to do it. Yeah, and how many perfectly capable people is that keeping out of the workforce right now? When you look at it from the inflation perspective, you're preventing people from producing, from being productive, from getting those goods and services back in line with the growth of the money supply. So it's not just bad for people. It's also bad for the the, uh, inflation numbers that we're seeing now. Yeah, it drives, it drives... Uh, the amount of money that you have to pay f- to get something done, if there's not, let's say you got X amount of people doing the job right now, but if you took that license away, you'd have triple X amount of people doing it, then the, co- the, the cost of getting it done typically will go down. You don't let it go down by having occupational licenses. That's right. And these days, about one in four jobs requires some kind of an occupational license. 60 years ago, it was one job in 20. And I don't think consumers are any better off as a result of all those extra licenses. Who is better off are the incumbents, the people, the existing hair braiders, for example, liked that regulation because it kept competitors out, which That's right. they could jack up their prices. People would pay more and get less. Absolutely. Okay, so you've given us a couple of, uh, of ideas here. How do we make it happen? I mean, how does the average, uh, you know, Joe Lunch Bucket or or uh, you know Joni Lunch Bucket get uh, the you know the people to do what they should do to help them because the people who are doing these programs they're saying that we're helping you look at all this money we're spending for you when in fact it's detrimental to you. Yeah, what we need to do is get our policymakers focusing on things like regulation, not just occupational licenses, but things like uh, trade barriers or labor regulations that are preventing truck drivers, for example, from getting jobs. Uh, A lot of truck drivers are independent operators. They don't work for big companies that can afford lobbyists. They're independent operators. It might just be themselves. They might just have a couple of drivers and a couple of trucks that maybe they rent out to other drivers. 
they have all kinds of regulatory hurdles that are keeping them off of the roads, keeping our ports clogged. The ports themselves have their own regulations. And a lot of these aren't just at the federal level, way out in Washington. A lot of these are at the state level. So they're thing and state legislatures are actually pretty accessible if you can email them or call them. Um, they'll actually pick up the phone themselves, not some staffer, and you can actually talk to them and let them know your concerns. Uh, so that gives me room for optimism, at least at the state level in a lot of places. Uh, the federal level, we're doing what we can, but we'll see. All right, Ryan, we appreciate your time today. CEI.org, you can look up Ryan's name, Ryan Young. He's got uh, articles that he publishes uh, about these issues, and one that you should be looking at is What's this COVID mandate thing going to do uh, to our economy? And we can talk about that in another show. Thanks a lot, Ryan. We appreciate your time. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Happy Veterans Day. Uh, same to you now. All right. So, yeah, that I just wanted to I, I feel lucky because when I went to high school, I had to take a year of economics in my high school. And I learned a lot of these basics. And then you had to take a year of uh, of government, and I I learned about our government. They don't do that anymore, and that's that's sad. All right, news is next. Be back in a moment. So, are you concerned about out of control government spending, soaring inflation, political unrest, a rapid decline of the U.S. dollar? If you are, you're you're not alone. There's millions of people that are worried about that as well, and that's why. They're beginning to buy silver and gold to protect their nest eggs. Don't let 1970-style inflation destroy your retirement. What you want to do is get with David Lucas Financial, and you can learn how silver and gold can help you protect your assets, your IRA, 401K, hard-earned savings by calling 501-222-3315. David Lucas Financial Uh, works with one of the only regulated and licensed national wholesalers in the country, so you get direct prices from a dealer you can trust. To learn more about buying silver and gold, call 501-222-3315. That's 501-222-3315. Investment advisory services offered through David Lucas Financial an Arkansas registered investment advisor. Yesterday, I got a email from the uh, Little Rock uh, Convention and Visitors Bureau, letting me know what was going to be happening for Christmas time here in uh, Little Rock. And I thought, you know, we're not that far. We're not that far away. So uh, I let me get you all the information you need. So you know what's going to be going on because the big celebration goes down on December 4th here in the city. And uh, Diana Long has joined us with the uh, LRCVB or the Little Rock Convention and Visitors Bureau. And she's going to tell us all about the Big Jingle Jubilee Festival. Festival is the operative word here. Is that not right, Diana? That is correct, Dave. You know, for 50 years up until 2020 when we couldn't do anything, Um, Due to the pandemic, we have had the Big Jingle Jubilee Holiday Parade. Mm -hmm. And this year, we are putting a new spin on our holiday event that leads up to the Capitol Lighting. So the Capitol Lighting Ceremony is always the first Saturday in December. That parade has led up to the Capitol 
lighting. This year we're putting a new spin on it. We're going to have a holiday street festival. Cool. It will include, we're just going to be like two blocks from where the Capitol lighting is. So from uh, like noon until five that day, we are going to have um, holiday craft vendors, face painters. We're going to have pictures with Santa. We're going to have food trucks. It is not going to be a parade, um, but we are going to have this great festival. It's a brand-new concept for us. We're really excited about it. We just opened up um, vendor registration for that, and I know a lot of people are really excited on that end to come and get out there and, and sell their wares, and so we'd like to see everybody come down before the Capitol lighting, do some holiday shopping, enjoy just a festive atmosphere and spend the afternoon and then go on up to the Capitol Lighting, which will get started right about 530. Are you going to have any music at all? Any uh, high school choirs coming to serenade us with Christmas time music or anything like that? We are going to have Christmas time music. Um, we are going to, you know, one of the big parts of the parade has always been the marching band competition. Right. And we are still going to do that, but in a little bit of a different form this year because we are hosting in December on the 17th the National Junior College Division One National Football Championship at War Memorial Stadium. Oh, wow. So we are asking, instead of a marching band competition through the street, we are asking for marching bands to send us a video of their best halftime performance, which will be judged just like the marching band performance in the parade. And the winner of that um, competition will be invited to play the national anthem at the opening of the National Junior College Division One National Football Championship. And so this is a huge deal for this um, football game. It's going to be televised on CBS Sports, and so not only will the, the kids get to come and play the national anthem at the beginning, <clears throat> that's the first place winner, but the second and third place winners will all receive complimentary tickets to come to the game and you know cheer on their fellow um, high school students um, who are playing in the bands that uh, win and get to play the national anthem. And so it's a little bit of a different spin. I know some people may be disappointed that there is not a parade, uh, but we just want to do something a little bit different. We've had 50 years of a parade. And so I think a street festival, it's a little bit safer in terms of um, logistics and, you know, little kids get so excited when they see Santa or floats go by. People are tossing out candy. They run into the road. You yeah. know, and so we're always a little bit concerned about that. We've never had a major issue. But since we've had to take a break last year during the pandemic, we decided let's put a new spin on this. Let's do something a little bit different, see how it goes, see how everybody likes it. We're always trying to reinvent and uh do new things at the CBB for the community, and we're really excited to have kind of a fresh idea on our big holiday event before the Capitol lighting. I like this idea. I think it's going to be very, very cool with the food trucks and all the rest. There's going to be, I'm sure with the food trucks, there'll be some kind of holiday fair. Somebody will sell hot chocolate. Somebody's going to sell, you know, cookies of, of uh, you know, Christmas type uh, situations and things of that nature i'd be i'm i'm, I'm gonna go i always come to the lighting 
so I'll come to the fair as well, this festival that you're going to have as well. Uh, so far, have you had a pretty good, uh, you know, I mean, you just announced it, but I'm. are you getting quite a few people who want to take part in this? Yeah, so far we are. Uh, we literally just sent out the press yesterday. You're our very first interview, so thank you very much for that. Uh, but we've sent our vendor invite out. We've got an email that's going out by the end of this week to all of the registered food trucks in Little Rock saying, hey, sign up for this event. Um, you know, we uh, we do have some limited space that we're working with, but we're going to try to bring the best vendors and the best food trucks that, that sign up down to host this event. And like I said, we will have some holiday music. We're going to bring in a DJ to play all of your holiday favorites. Just have a good time before the parade. Do a little holiday shopping. Well, it sounds like a great family event, and uh, that's what we need at the holidays is family events. And if you've, if people have never been to the lighting at the Capitol, they need to go to it because it's very cool. When that it's when, really cool. Yeah, when that ba- when that uh, building goes from no lights to all lights, it's amazing. Yes, and. I can't speak to all the details of what the capital lighting is um, going to involve this year, but I do know that they're doing some things a little bit different as well and bigger, and they're going to have some bleachers set up there on Wood Lane, which is the road right in front of the Capitol, so that more people can sit down and, and view the programming that they'll have. Mm-hmm. Um, once photos with Santa ends with us, Santa always goes over to the state capitol and continues to meet and greet people over there for that event. So, you know, we encourage you to come out to the holiday festival, stay for the lighting ceremony, and just make a family day out of it. I think it'll be a great time for all. All right, we're talking to Diana Long, and she is with the Little Rock uh, Convention and Visitors uh, Bureau. And we're talking to her about the big Jingle Jubilee Festival this year. Where exactly uh, are you guys going to be located at? And if someone is... You know, interested in getting their food truck there, or they got some crafts they want to show off. Uh, who do they got to contact and where? Sure. So um, the food trucks we're going to put right along Capitol in the two blocks that lead up to the state Capitol. Okay. So really, it's kind of a steep street, so it's hard to set up vendor booths there. Um, you don't notice it until you're trying to walk up at how steep it is. Yeah, it <laughs> is steep. Parade, but it is. And so we are we are fortunate to partner up with the Arkansas State Chamber and Francis Flower Shop. They are just there on the corner, I think, of Victory and Capitol. So we're going to put our street, like our vendors, as far as our arts and crafts folks, are going to be in the State Chamber parking lot, which is a really big parking lot, and that'll keep people safe and off of a main street that kind of thing for shopping allows for easier loadout and that kind of deal and then the food trucks will put on capital closer to the capital lighting and then if those guys want to stay in their positions during the capital lighting people can still go see them um, get a snack get some hot chocolate that kind of thing while they're there all right if you'll hold with me i'll come back and uh, we'll go over a few of these things again so everybody is sure. clear about what time and where and 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 all the rest. So Diana, uh, Diana sure. Long is going to be with us again here in a moment. i got to get a break in. Let's do that. I want to remind you about Hillcrest Designer Jewelry and what uh, Eric is doing on uh, it with his business over at 3000 Cavanaugh Boulevard in, on Suite E. I was just at 
at uh, Hillcrest Designer Jewelry Saturday, this previous Saturday, and uh, listen to what uh, Eric told me when he's... And you, you tell me if he's right or wrong here, Diana. He says, every woman wants a pair of diamond stud earrings. Is that true? I never take mine out. It's the only pair of earrings that I own. They're beautiful, and I love them. They go with absolutely everything, and I wear them every day. So, yes, I can absolutely concur with that. Well, then I guess I'll win this Christmas. My wife is, you know, she she doesn't like to to show off her rings, so she doesn't wear them often. She got some nice rings. Uh, And I thought this year I would try uh, a necklace, and and, uh, Eric looked at me and said, no, 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 no. Does she have a pair of diamond-studded earrings? I said, no. He says, that's what you buy. And that's, that's what, what I bought. So, I think you made a good choice, Dave, because they go with everything. And a lot of women, like I'm not a dangly earring kind of chick, uh-huh. um, which is why having the studs is convenient. They're not in the way or getting caught up in your hair or your sweater or anything, but they still are a beautiful um, little piece of bling right there on your on your ears there to kind of frame your face. So I think you did a good job. I can't wait to hear what your wife has to say after the holiday. Well, I'll, I'll let you know. 3000 Cavanaugh Boulevard, Suite E is where you find Eric. He opens up every day at 10 o'clock. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll stay open uh, until every last customer has been satisfied. Or if you want to call him and set up a time to visit him to talk about something unique you want him to design, it's 501-246-3655 for Hillcrest Designer Jewelry. All right, we've got about five minutes left here in this half hour. Don't forget, coming up in the 8 o'clock hour, Jerry Stewart will join us in an hour uh, Veterans Day uh, special dealing with the USS Indianapolis. If you don't know that story do not miss this special. It is, well, it's really special, to be honest. And happy Veterans Day to all my fellow vets, uh, and thank you for your service that you render to your country. Diana Long is with us with the uh, Little Rock Convention and Visitors uh, Bureau. We're glad to have her along. We've been talking to her for this half hour. I want to go back over a few things with you, Diana, so that everybody's clear on what's happening the big jingle jubilee festival this year will not be a parade that last word explains what it's going to be it's going to be a big festival you're going to have face painting and great foods and hot chocolate and cookies and all kinds of stuff for people uh it'll start what did you say at noon and go to about five o'clock when the uh, uh capital uh, uh lighting happens that's all right. We'll start at noon. We go noon to five with the shopping and pictures with Santa. We'll have um, a holiday DJ out there. We'll have food trucks. And then at end at five o'clock, which gives people who are there shopping just enough time to get a great spot at the Capitol so that they can be positioned when they start their program, which is right about 530. <clears throat> So, for information on this, the best place for you to look is com slash jingle. So, it is for the Big Jingle Jubilee Street Fair. And um, if you'll visit com, which is where you can find information on all kinds of events and happenings going on in Little Rock, we have a special landing page with information about 
the event and a place for people to register. And again, that is literock.com slash jingle, J-I-N-G-L-E. All right. I've got to say that this sounds very, very good. Whoever came up with this idea should get a raise. Were you the one that came up with the idea? It was not, but I'll convey that to the uppers. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, do that for me, because I think this is going to be fun, since it's going to be right there at the lighting and stuff. Yeah, it's going to be different, because it's not a parade, but I don't want people to be too upset, because we're still planning a super fun afternoon for y'all to come out and enjoy um, some holiday stuff and get ready for the capital lighting. So just encourage everybody to come out, give this first time event a try. Um, and see see what it's all about. We think it's going to be a great time. Well, I promise you this, Diana. I will be there. I'll look you up and tell you that I'm there. Bring my grandson over, and, uh, and, and my my granddaughters, and we'll have we're going to have a good time. I can tell you that right now. And again, the date for this is Saturday, December fourth. It's the first Saturday in December. All right, keep that in mind, everybody. Diana Long with the uh, Little Rock. Convention and Visitors Bureau, or the LRCVB, as everybody calls it. Thanks a lot, Diana. We'll talk to you uh, down the road. Thanks, Dave. I really appreciate the time this morning. Okay. Bye-bye now. Yeah, that's uh, Diana Long. She did a good job explaining about everything going on. Food trucks are going to be there, They're going to, and, and that means they're going to have all kinds of food there. Uh, she promised hot chocolate. I got to have hot chocolate when they light up the the capital by that time it'll be chilly in the evening so you'll want to be sipping on some hot chocolate and uh, enjoying that and then there's nothing better than going out and maybe being able to pick up some decorations for your home uh from the the vendors that will be making christmasy stuff uh for your house and those are the best things you can pick up because they're unique uh not everybody will have a lot of uh, the same thing. So you can pick up some things that you put on display in your own home. And somebody's going to say, where'd you get that? And you'll say, well, I got it at the uh, uh, the big Jingle Jubilee Festival. Well, can I get one of them? I says, I guess you got to wait to the next festival <laughs> and hope that person's making them, you know, uh, again for you. So anyway, you got that coming up. All right, let's finish up by... Reminding you again, today, if you see somebody who uh, is a veteran, whether they're just wearing a hat or whatever, would you take a moment to uh, thank them? Walk up and say, thanks for your service. You, I'm sure you'll see men and women today uh, wearing hats that say they're Korean War vets, World War II vets, uh, Vietnam vets, you know, uh, Iraqi freedom vets, I mean, all kinds of uh, service uh, during times of war. Don't forget about the Cold War warriors as well, the people who kept us safe uh, from Soviet aggression uh, that went on. And uh, be a great time just to, to shake their hand and say thanks. Uh, I don't have a list in front of me, but there's a lot of businesses that are offering uh, freebies for veterans today and no they're not going to ask you to show them a dd form 214 to prove your service they take your word for it and uh, i know that uh, denny's used to give one of those big breakfasts that they had you get that free but i will tell you if you're going to do that 
get to the place that you're going to early because they will be packed with veterans and that'll be uh, again a great time to go out and and uh, and, and meet some veterans uh, coming up after the news here at the top of the hour uh, we'll have five minutes for, of news for you you can catch up on that trial with Rittenhouse uh, up in Wisconsin that is crazy I watched that yesterday on Fox they were televising it live and this prosecutor that's going after Rittenhouse he's nuts he asked, he asked him, you shot this guy. He's only four foot away from me. He said he had a gun. And he, lo- he looked at this guy. Listen to this, Heidi. He looks at this guy to Rittenhouse and said, but he hadn't fired yet. He was within four feet, man. You got to wait to, you know, he for sure can't miss you and let him fire at you before you're going to fire? I don't think so. Uh, it, it seems to be a pretty open and shut uh, case of self-defense to me. And um, I think the, the guy's going to get off. I, I don't see him being charged with murder. And, or uh, I can't believe they charged him with first-degree murder. That's incredible uh, in and of itself. So anyway, uh, be, keep your eyes open on that one, and I'm sure they'll have something about it here uh, in the news in just a moment. Uh, the, the Democrats are tripling down now. You heard what the president said. He said, you know, we don't have enough money circulating yet. We need more money to circulate out there. And if you listen to our first guest, he said, that's exactly why we have the inflationary numbers that we have going on right now. All right, Dave Ellswick Show, stay tuned. News is coming up and our special for Veterans Day with Jerry Stewart about the USS Indianapolis. A special Veterans Day tribute program, The Fight to Survive. On the night of July the 30th, 1945, as the cruiser USS Indianapolis traveled through the Pacific waters just after midnight, as most all of the crew slept, this mighty ship was struck by two deadly torpedoes and was sunk in just 12 minutes. Of the 1,196 men on board, roughly 900 survived and were forced into the water. And for the next five horrifying days, those who did survive the sinking literally fought for their lives. 
They had to endure severe dehydration, hypothermia, and most of all, continuing attacks by huge ocean sharks. By the time they were finally rescued on that fifth day, only 317 men had survived. This is their story. Hello, I'm Jerry Stewart. The story I'm about to tell you is truly the most terrifying story I have ever heard. It's a story of unbelievable hardship and suffering and death. But it's more than that. It's an amazing story of great courage and determination and faith. And today, to help me tell this story, I have one survivor who was willing to talk about just what happened to him and his small group of men there at sea. His name is Edgar Harrell. He served as a Marine in World War II, and he was on the USS Indianapolis the night she sunk. I want to thank Mr. Harrell for his brave military service and his willingness to tell us his story. And I want to thank all of the brave men who served on the USS Indianapolis. Without their great service, their sacrifice, and the sacrifice of all who have fought for you and me since then, without them, we would not have our freedom today. And now, the fight to survive. In 1941, when the Japanese successfully attacked Pearl Harbor, we knew that both the Germans and the Japanese would be powerful enemies to defeat. In the Pacific, the Japanese military machine had swallowed up so many of the islands. But little by little, the tide of the war was turning to the Allies. But the war did rage on. And by the fall of 1943, one young high school boy, Edgar Harrell, now just 18, felt compelled to volunteer. The war was going on in the Pacific, and I, as, as a young man, I felt I'd sure like to get in. And I, I preferred to be in the Marine Corps, so uh, actually I uh, contacted the, the draft board to see if I could volunteer. Edgar knew this war was a fight not just for the freedom and survival of our nation, but for the entire world. It was a war necessary to destroy evil and to protect those who could not protect themselves. He enlisted and was sworn in as a U.S. Marine. After enlisting, he was given a short time back at home before reporting to duty. But for Edgar, the thought of going to war brought other deeper thoughts. What about his soul? During that time, hearing all that was happening in the Pacific, I, I wondered, I may not make it back home. And so on that Lord's Day uh, morning, I went to our little church, and uh, there the pastor uh, preached a message. He gave an invitation. He pronounced the benediction, and I sat there, and he came back, and he sat down with me, and he asked me if I wanted to trust the Lord there that morning, and I said, well, yes, I feel that the Lord is basically saying to me, today's my last chance, and I, I feel that I need to, and so there in the quietness of that little pew, so I trust the Lord there that Lord's Day morning, 1st of August, 1943. Now equipped with the assurance of his eternal destiny and the promise that God would be with him no matter where he may go, whatever may come, Edgar made his way to boot camp in San Diego, and in March of 1944, he was assigned to the heavy cruiser, the USS Indianapolis. The India, she was called, was a magnificent ship over 610 feet long with 107,000 horsepower. She was a fighting machine. They fought in the Marshall Islands, at Guam, Saipan, 
Tinian, Iwo Jima, the Mariana Islands, so many battles. But there was one battle, one kamikaze attack Edgar still remembers quite well. We took a kamikaze plane in in Okinawa. From that, I I believe we lost nine boys and uh, several were injured in uh, the armor-piercing bomb that that plane had as he was diving basically at the fantail and he came within uh, 50 feet of me. We we rushed to get the guns loaded and ready, but the plane hit, I think they said, uh, in about five or six seconds. The kamikaze had blown two gaping holes in the ship's bottom, forcing the USS Indy back to the States for repairs. Edgar says the return home was great, but while in San Francisco, suddenly all leaves were canceled and the Indy was forced to get underway immediately. But before they left, a very secret cargo came on board. You could look out and you could see all kinds of Navy brass and Marines, and we wondered what in the world is going on here. And then we have a horse to board the ship, and it reaches over on the dock and picks that up and brings it over onto the quarterdeck of the ship. And my Marine captain, he says, Harold, they're, they're going to put that over here in the port uh, hangar deck, and uh, I want you to station a guard on that. Well, what do we have? And he said, we have the least idea. He said, I understand that the captain doesn't even know what we've got. Along with this mysterious crate came another container accompanied by two men dressed in Air Force uniforms. Edgar and the other men on board thought this looked very strange. There were two men then that were dressed in Air Force uniforms that came aboard, and as they came aboard, uh, it was kind of uh, conspicuous uh, in that, uh, you know, who, who are they and why are they aboard a ship? And uh, it, it appeared that they, they had something in their possession. On July the 16th, 1945, the USS Indy set sail on a course which took them in record speed to Tinian Island, a small island in the Pacific, where they dropped off their mysterious cargo. It wasn't until much later that Edgar and the world found out just what cargo they had been carrying, the two atomic bombs that were dropped on Japan. And just who were those two mysterious Air Force men? They were Los Alamos scientists in disguise, carrying the uranium-235 necessary to detonate those two huge bombs. Unbeknownst to all crew on board, the USS Indy had just delivered their most precious cargo ever, a cargo that would finally end the war. But there was something else the crew of the Indy didn't know, the unbelievable horror they were about to face. After delivering their cargo, the Indy set its new course to the island of Guam, this time without escort in supposedly safe waters. But there was another someone cruising the Pacific, a Japanese submarine under the command of Mochisura Hashimoto. Commander Hashimoto had been at sea for four long years and was still looking to sink his first enemy ship. And on the night of July the 29th, at roughly 11 p.m., he spotted the USS Indianapolis. I had gotten off a watch there on the night of July the 29th at 12 o'clock. I go below deck and I get my blanket and I come topside because, you know, we're trapping in close to 100 degree weather and, you know, sun shining down on a steel ship, it gets pretty hot. And uh, I made my pallet under number one turret. It just begun to doze off and I guess it's maybe 12 minutes after midnight or so, uh, just a massive explosion. The Japanese submarine had sent six deadly torpedoes speeding toward the Indy. Two had hit their marks. 
I realized immediately that we've either hit a mine or a submarine has torpedoed us because the bow of the ship was cut off. And when I say cut off, it wasn't there. Men were rushing to their battle stations. Others had been seriously injured. The scene was horrific. You could see the flesh hanging from their face and from their uh, from their arms, and uh, they were pleading for someone to give them some help. In fact, they were just hysterical. The Indy was sinking quickly as men began to get their life jackets and dive overboard. For a moment, Edgar Harrell paused. Was he about to dive into that deep black ocean all alone? But then he remembered that Sunday in his little church, giving his heart to Christ and the wonderful promise that God had given him, I will never leave you or forsake you. And at that moment, Edgar remembers becoming very calm. No matter what happened, God was with him. When I went into the water, I, I stepped over the rail and, and uh, stepped down the keel of the ship about two big long steps and uh, kind of jumped in feet first. I came up and tried to take my my hands and get my head above, above that oil and then to begin swimming away from uh, the ship. Unbelievably, in just 12 minutes, that magnificent ship, the USS Indianapolis, had just sunk. Edgar remembers that one last look. We turned around and just somewhat watched the ship as that bow went under and then that fantail begins to uh, protrude high up in the air as it rolled over on the starboard side and uh, just somewhat just slid down into the water. The Indy was gone and the sea was now full of 900 sailors and marines, many injured from the attack. They had no food or rafts or supplies. They were alone in the middle of the Pacific. But little did they know that they were not alone at all. They could only hope and pray that the worst of the attacks was over. Now would come their rescue. But there would be no rescue. Only sharks, hundreds, perhaps thousands of huge ocean sharks coming for them. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'm taking a break now, but when we return, the men in the sea must now fight to survive. Hello, Jerry Stewart here. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Kelly and I have put together something we think you will like. So please take a moment here to listen to what Kelly is about to share with you. Hello, this is Kelly Stewart. I wonder how many citizens today would stand and say, this is my America. We need to remember those who fought and are still fighting to keep us as a free nation today. Think about it. We are able to stand up for our flag, Old Glory, because of those brave veterans who gave us the right to. It was General Omar Bradley who said, No word was ever spoken that has held out greater hope or has demanded greater sacrifice than this word, freedom. If you have someone serving today or have served and would like to give them a copy of today's program, Jerry and I put together this special package just for you. For just $24.95 plus $5 shipping and handling, you will get all this. Today's program, The Fight to Survive on CD, plus a second CD, Remembering Pearl Harbor, reminding us all of why we have a free America. By now, and you'll also receive what Jerry calls the Freedom Quotes for Our America. These are great for all ages to learn about the brave veterans who put their lives on the line so that we could live free and today still keep us safe from our enemies. Think about it. Buy one set for yourself and one for a veteran that you may know. 
To get this special offer, go online to www.jerrystewartusa.com or call our order line at 817-995-4607 and someone will take your order. You will get two CDs and the Freedom Quotes for America for a total of just $29.95. That order number again, 817-995-4607 or go online to jerrystewartusa.com to place your order. God bless you. Hello and welcome back to this special Veterans Day tribute program. I'm Jerry Stewart. Today I'm telling you the horrific story of the men of the USS Indianapolis, a ship that was torpedoed in World War II on the night of July the 29th, 1945, and just what happened to those roughly 900 sailors and Marines who survived that sinking and had to endure five days swimming in shark-infested waters. The story is being told to us by one of those survivors, Marine Edgar Harrell. My thanks to Mr. Harrell for his willingness to give us his first-hand account. And now, back to the fight to survive. We took inventory just soon after the ship, you know, had gone under. We had several boys that were were injured, and we had a few that didn't have life jackets, and they were hanging on to someone. As the survivors floated in that open ocean, the waves and currents began to divide them into smaller groups. Edgar says there were about 80 in his group. In order for us to stay together, we soon found out that we nearly need to kind of form a circle and fasten our capon jackets to each other and uh, some of those boys in that were injured and I had a Marine buddy that was uh, injured uh, severely and he only lasted a couple of hours. All of that night, some who had been injured in the torpedo attack began to die, but the men did their best to stay together, wondering if an SOS had been sent and hoping, praying that rescuers were on their way, but they weren't. But something else was coming for them. By morning, I, I would say that our group may have lost six or eight guys. It wasn't long up in the day until we had company. At most uh, any time during uh, that first day, there would be sharks swimming all around us. It appeared that if the men stayed together, the sharks were reluctant to attack. But as the day progressed, the group began to split up. You'd have some boys that maybe had high temperatures, and they began to hallucinate, and maybe they'd unhook their K-Pak jackets from a buddy, and first thing you know, they can imagine there's an island or something out there, and so they swim out from the group. When they broke loose, the sharks would make their move. An inquisitive shark comes along, and he takes a nib at them. Well, after he's... Uh, nipped them a time or two, uh, or, you know, two or three boys or so, well, all that blood, then that attracts the shark. And then it got to where then even before the first day was over, that any time a boy would get out, then you'd hear a blood-curdling scream, and you'd see that capon jacket go under, and if, if you watched it, then you could see that it would go under, and then in a moment or two, then it would pop back up then, and it would have... Uh, the remains of the boy and maybe he had been uh, disemboweled or a leg would be gone. As the sharks began to see that they had nothing to fear, they became bolder and began to make their way into the larger group. I saw a shark coming just straight at me. I could see the fin from maybe from 30 feet coming in to six feet or so. And, and you see that and you, you know, life is over. You scream out for God to help you somehow, some way, and, and you don't even hardly have time to, to say that. And then all of a sudden he goes under you. 
and you feel that dorsal fin when he, uh, you know, when he went under, or you feel the wake of him. But amazingly, miraculously, as that shark came at Edgar to attack him, at the last moment he moved off. But soon, another would come. A buddy over here by you, all of a sudden, then uh, a shark comes along, and he hits him and takes him under. And then you try to get away from all that blood because you know that there's going to be a many, many sharks coming around there. I asked Edgar just how big these sharks were. 10, 12 feet long. They're swimming, uh, just milling around. There'll be times maybe when you, you don't see a shark. There's no fins above the water, but uh, you stick your head down in the water, and you can see a dozen sharks down under you. One can only imagine just how absolutely terrifying it would be, floating helplessly in the middle of an ocean, your legs just dangling down, wondering if you would be the shark's next target. But unbelievably, the sharks were not their only problem. The men had become dehydrated. Their tongues were swelling with sores forming inside their mouths. They desperately needed something that they didn't have, fresh drinking water. But some men turned to drinking the salt water. We had been told over and over and over in training, if you ever shipwreck, don't drink that salt water because in a dehydrated body, I mean, it goes to the brain in a hurry and uh, you begin to hallucinate. I saw boys as they would tear the clothing off their sleeve or something of their clothing and kind of make a strainer and they'd put some water up in that and another one stick his head under it and he would drink a little of the salt water and try to tell us that, hey, it's not too bad. At first, drinking the salt water seemed to help. But what they had been taught about not drinking that water was in fact, true. Well, 15 to 20, 30 minutes from there, he began to thrash in the water and he begins to yell and begins to, you know, a lot of convulsion and maybe a kind of a root beer foamy substance would be coming out of his nose and he's going crazy. And then he would see an island out there and uh, I had someone even that second day that came up to me, saw that as a Marine and he'd say, hey Marine, see that island over there? I just came from there. And Captain Parks, Lieutenant Stauffer, Sergeant Cromley, they're over there. They're having a picnic. They want you to come over. When that man would become delirious from the saltwater poisoning, he would fight the other men trying to save him. He would break away from the group, and the sharks were waiting. He would swim out 50 yards or so, and then all of a sudden a blood-curdling scream, and you'd see that K-Bog jacket go under, and then uh, momentarily it would pop back up, and the boy then uh, maybe disemboweled, or sometimes we would go and check, and yet most of the time, you know, you're afraid to go and check. But for Edgar Harrell, as if his own dehydration and fighting the giant waves and the salt water and the threat of sharks, as if that wasn't enough, he also had a fellow Marine who had been suffering terribly from the beginning his friend, Miles Spooner. Edgar was fighting hard to keep him alive. Spooner went into the water head first, and just immediately he was suffering with his eyes, even the first night and certainly through the first day. And if you can imagine, you know, you've just stuck your head in a half inch of, of oil floating on the on the water, and now you're going to try to rub that out. Well, how do you rub it out? Now you're, you're kind of rubbing some of that oil kind of in your eye cavity. And then, you know, that salt in the salt water is in there, too. So you're crushing your eyeball with that. And then all the chemicals that are in the, the salt water, too. His eyes had become so swollen and inflamed that he couldn't even shut them. He was miserable, so miserable, that he told Edgar he was going to commit suicide. I asked him, I said, well, how are you going to do that? And uh, he said, well, I'm going to just dive down so far, I'll drown before I come back up. 
And I said, Spooner, you're not going to do any such thing. I said, there's only two of we Marines in the group, and there's going to be two Marines when everyone else is gone. Basically, I just turned him to me and fastened his K-Bock jacket onto mine to where he, uh, you know, he can't get away. And then we swam together through that night. It's hard to imagine how all of the men could continue to endure. But Edgar said that for many of the men, they were drawing their strength from something, someone far bigger than they were, Almighty God. And during those long nights, they would come together in prayer meetings, lasting literally for hours with each man pleading with God to save them, to get them home safely. And Edgar Harrell just kept trusting, kept believing God's promise to always be with him. And on the second day, something they desperately needed did come. On the second day, we were so thirsty for water, and we had a little rain cloud that you could see it coming over, getting closer and closer. And, you know, I held my mouth open as wide as I could, and I thanked the Lord for the the water that I was receiving, maybe four or five tablespoons full. From the rain, Edgar and the others were given a small ray of hope. But with men literally dying all around them with the constant deadly shark attacks and the severe dehydration they were suffering, just how much longer could they last? As if that wasn't enough, something else began to happen. Hypothermia. Some men were freezing to death. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'm taking a break now, but when I return, as the survivors begin to die from hypothermia, some new men come into their group with a plan. I'll be back with more of this special tribute program after these messages. And now we return to the fight to survive. Hello, I'm Jerry Stewart. If you're just tuning in, you're hearing the story of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis in World War II and just what happened to those who survived the sinking. The story is being told by one survivor, Marine Corporal Edgar Harrell. On the night of that second day, with huge ocean sharks still taking men out, something else began to happen, hypothermia. Although the water was a seemingly warm 85 degrees, it was far too cold to endure night after night, and the men's body temperatures began to drop to that 85 degrees. If you're in 85 degree water, your body is going to succumb to 85 degrees, and that hypothermia begins to set in, and then you begin to hallucinate, and uh, you're just not all there. You shake, shake, shake there at night, and then the daytime, 100 degree sun beaming down on that water, and and that sun, it'll, uh, it'll sunburn you uh, three feet underwater. One doctor's report explains the deadly effects of hypothermia this way. He says that as the sun set and the nighttime temperature began to drop, the men began to shiver uncontrollably. This was the body's way of generating heat. But the shivering quadruples the rate of oxygen consumed, which begins to depress the central nervous system, so the body slows down to conserve energy. And as it slows down, speaking becomes difficult. Amnesia begins to set in, and the body begins to shut down. The kidneys stop working, urination stops, and the poisoning of the body begins. Breathing becomes labored, the heart beats raggedly, and the victim eventually falls into unconsciousness, and more and more men 
began to die. At first, we, we even tried to take off their dog tags, and someone would keep those, but it wasn't long till whomever was keeping the dog tags, he's no longer around. Of the original 80 men in his group, now Edgar Harrell took account. There were only 17 men still alive. It was the third day, but then something happened. It was about one o'clock on the third afternoon that a little makeshift of a raft came into our group. There were five sailors. They had uh, two 40 millimeter ammunition cans and uh, something like a potato crate, slatted wood crate or an orange crate. They had two or three of those. So when they came into our group, they said that they were swimming uh, to the Philippines. How far is the Philippines? We didn't know. It could have been as much as 500 miles from there. But nevertheless, they said if we can get closer to the Philippines, that uh, sooner or later somebody maybe will spot us. And they asked if anyone wanted to join them. Well, there were 17 of us in our little group then. And I said to my Marine buddy Spooner, I said, Spooner, I'm going to go with them. So Edgar and his fellow Marine Spooner said their farewells to the remaining 15 in their group. Edgar says, to his knowledge, he never saw those men again. As Edgar and the others courageously paddled toward what they believed was the direction to the Philippines, the current pushing back was clearly stronger than they were. They were so weak, they desperately needed something to eat. And then, as the sun was sinking in the west, they saw something floating in the water. We spotted what appeared to be an old crate or something floating around in the water, and I swam out and got that, and as I got out closer and closer to it, you know, I'm praying that it would have some food in it, and well, what's the chances, you know, there'd be some food out there in the Pacific in a crate, but as I got closer and closer, within eight feet or so of that, I could see those Irish potatoes, you know, floating in that crate, and uh, you know, I did not pause and thank the Lord for the food I was about to receive, but in desperation, I'm rushing best I could, you know, to get to one of those. It was potatoes, all right, but unfortunately, they were rotten. Kind of in the agony of defeat as I got a hold of that first potato, and it was rotten, and all that rot was just squeezing through my fingers, and kind of in despair, I squeezed that, and, and it was solid on the inside, so... I often tell, I'm uh, speaking to uh, the ladies, that uh, you know what a rotten potato smells like. I know what they taste like. It was truly a miracle, and they thanked God for what he had provided. With a little food in their bellies, they were now determined to make their way closer to a possible rescue. But as the night fell and the water began to cool, it became overcast, and no matter how they tried, they could not see one star to help them navigate. They didn't know which way to paddle. We could see soon on that it's going to be uh, cloudy tonight. It's going to be dark. We won't be able to see. There's no moon to be shining tonight. And then it was pitch black. And we had thought that we'd be able to see the Southern Cross and, and know which way, you know, would be west. They could only float and wait and pray as the water became colder and colder. But then they heard something. Sometime during that night, we heard voices, and well, it was maybe six guys. One was Lieutenant McKissick, and, and maybe five sailors, as kind of stragglers, uh, you know, one at a time or so. They came into our group, and uh, we wanted to go to the Philippines, and that's what they were trying to do, that get close enough, and maybe someone would spot us. As they talked, Edgar shared what was left of the mostly rotten potatoes. And as they awaited the coming of the new morning of that fourth day at sea, They had no idea what was ahead. When we return, the men see a plane. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'll be back with more of this amazing and courageous story after these messages.
Hello, Jerry Stewart here. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Kelly and I have put together something we think you will like. So please take a moment here to listen to what Kelly is about to share with you. Hello, this is Kelly Stewart. I wonder how many citizens today would stand and say, this is my America. We need to remember those who fought and are still fighting to keep us as a free nation today. Think about it. We are able to stand up for our flag, Old Glory, because of those brave veterans who gave us the right to. It was General Omar Bradley who said, No word was ever spoken that has held out greater hope or has demanded greater sacrifice than this word, freedom. If you have someone serving today or have served and would like to give them a copy of today's program, Jerry and I put together this special package just for you. For just $24.95 plus $5 shipping and handling, you will get all this. Today's program, The Fight to Survive on CD, plus a second CD, Remembering Pearl Harbor, reminding us all of why we have a free America. By now, and you'll also receive what Jerry calls the Freedom Quotes for Our America. These are great for all ages to learn about the brave veterans who put their lives on the line so that we could live free, and today still keep us safe from our enemies. Think about it. Buy one set for yourself and one for a veteran that you may know. To get this special offer, go online to www.jerrystewartusa.com or call our order line at 817-995-4607 and someone will take your order. You will get two CDs and the Freedom Quotes for America for a total of just twenty nine ninety five. That order number again, 817-995-4607 or go online to jerrystewartusa.com to place your order. God bless you. Hello, I'm Jerry Stewart. It was now the fourth day and those in the water are continuing to die. In Edgar Harrell's book, Out of the Depths, one survivor gave this chilling, almost unbelievable account. He said, on the fourth day, one boy from Oklahoma saw the sharks eat his best friend. I suppose that was more than his brain could stand. He took his knife, which was about 12 inches long, placed it in his mouth, and started chasing sharks. He would go under for long periods of time, making us wonder whether he would ever come back up. I don't know how long this went on, but sooner or later, he wasn't around. Every day, there were more men drinking the salt water and more being eaten by sharks. Another survivor said this, We lost a lot of good men the first three days in the water. I think it was on the fourth day that I was hanging on the side of the net and this sailor came floating by. His mouth and tongue were full of salt water sores. I grabbed him and tied him as best I could to the net, but he got away during the night. There is no way to imagine that terrible scene. And during the night, something had happened to Marine Edgar Harrell. And the rest of the night, I've tried to rack my brain to think about really what happened. But I know the next morning that I'm not with Spooner, I'm not with the raft, I'm with McKissick and one other sailor. But it wasn't long into the day until that one sailor, too, had died. Edgar said that as the dead sailor now drifted along with him in McKissick, it was hard to look at him. That could be him floating dead in just a few hours. Instead, he focused on living and he prayed, Oh God, help me not to give up. Then 
he heard something. All of a sudden, once I'm down in the valley of one of those swells, and uh, and I heard a plane, and I knew, you know, it's a plane, but, you know, where is it? And I, as I came up on the top, then I hollered out at McKissick, I hear a plane. They weren't just imagining it. It was a plane. When he got within the, like a quarter of a mile from us flying at 8,000 feet, what does he do but the heads it right down toward us? So we know at that time that someone has seen us, and yet he had. Although it appeared that the plane had spotted them in the water, it had not. The plane was a U.S. bomber used to search and destroy Japanese submarines. It was on a routine search mission, but there was a problem. The radio antenna was acting up, so the pilot, Lieutenant Chuck Gwynn, had gone to the back of the plane to retrieve the antenna and replace the stabilizer. They were dropping their altitude for this reason only. But as Lieutenant Gwynn lowered that bomb bay door and as the sun was setting just in the right position, the oil on the survivor's clothing reflected from the sun, catching his eye. He called out to the others on board. Look down there. They began to look down there and they too could see that kind of an oil slick. They all saw the oil reflection, but they believed it to be not men floating in the water, but a Japanese submarine. He ordered for all bombs to be loaded and to prepare to attack, and he started his dive. As he gets down closer and closer, he sees some boys, and then he circles us in a time or two, and then he goes back up a little higher then, and he breaks radio silence to declare ducks on the pond. They could see hundreds of men floating in the water. But what could they do? Nothing but wait. But the urgent plea for help was heard by Lieutenant Adrian Marks and his crew. They flew their seaplane to the rescue area and began to circle, dropping rafts and supplies to the men. But as they circled, they saw something else. Planes that actually spotted us in the water as they began to take inventory of the boys scattered over, say, 75 miles, they would testify that uh, they saw more sharks than they saw boys. Here the boys were, so close to rescue, but so very close to dying. Lieutenant Marks had standing orders, no landing his seaplane on the open ocean. It was just too dangerous. But then he saw it. They saw sharks attacking uh, say a group of boys, maybe 30 boys, and they said that as many as 30 sharks were attacking the boys at that time. Lieutenant Marks and his men watched the horror, and then they took a vote. Land on the open ocean and face a possible court-martial or stand by watching the boys die. The vote was unanimous. They prepared to land. He lands in an open sea with, uh, I'd say, 10, 12-foot swells, ruptured the, the pontoon a little bit, and they had to, you know, stick rags in that to keep them, get from sinking. As they fought the power of the huge ocean waves, the plane went from man to man, picking up whoever they could while working to keep from being swallowed up by the sea. And then he came for Edgar. When I was picked up, it was dusk dark, and I knew that they had picked up McKissick, and, uh, and we were far enough apart that there was a lot of swells in between us, and they couldn't turn the plane directly toward me, and maybe they were able to see me, whereas I'm down low in the water, and I wasn't able to hardly even see the plane. He was saved. Edgar Harrell had survived. When he got the plane full, then he, uh, he ties uh, some out on the wings, and he did that until it got so dark then that they, they dared not, you know, run the motors and run over someone. 
The plane was literally overloaded now. What would they do with all these men? When I got aboard the plane, they drug us in the plane, kind of stacked us like a sack of feed. One guy would be right against the next. I could look over and see USMC on a certain guy, and I, I could see these big sore eyes. I could see the blonde hair, all that oil and everything. At first, Edgar could not believe his eyes. It was Spooner. He had a can of green beans desperately trying to get the lid off. I said, hey, Marine, how about some of your bean juice? Well, you'd have to know Spooner, but he kind of told me where I could get off. I said, Spooner, you don't know who this is. And no, of course, you couldn't see me. I said, this is Harold. Now, I was the guy that, you know, had him tied on to me two nights before. And then the reunion. He just kind of fell over the guys in between us with that bean juice, kind of fell over to me to give me some of that, spilled some of it on the deck there, but it was a a real happy reunion that he and I now finally had made it. The 317 survivors were picked up by various ships. Edgar was picked up by the destroyer, the USS Doyle, and transported to Palau. Then he was picked up by the hospital ship, the Tranquility, and taken to Guam on August the 8th. In that first week in August, when the Japanese military ignored our warnings of a terrible new weapon we had and refused to surrender, we dropped the atomic bomb. If the atomic bomb had not ended the war, the Allied forces were already preparing an all-out attack on the Japanese islands. It was estimated that if an all-out attack was carried out, over one million of our American soldiers would die. I'm Jerry Stewart. I'll be back with some final comments after these messages. Hello, this is Kelly Stewart. I wonder how many citizens today would stand and say, this is my America. We need to remember those who fought and are still fighting to keep us as a free nation today. Think about it. We are able to stand up for our flag, Old Glory, because of those brave veterans who gave us the right to. If you have someone serving today or have served and would like to give them a copy of today's program, Jerry and I put together this special package just for you. For just $24.95, plus $5 shipping and handling, you will get all this. Today's program, The Fight to Survive on CD, plus a second CD, Remembering Pearl Harbor. Buy now, and you'll also receive what Jerry calls the Freedom Quotes for Our America. To get this special offer, go online to www.jerrystewartusa.com or call our order line at 817-995-4607 and someone will take your order. God bless you. Hello and welcome back to this special Veterans Day program. I'm Jerry Stewart. On August the 3rd, 1945, the USS Indianapolis survivors were rescued. Of the roughly 900 men who had been forced into the Pacific five days before, only 317 had survived. Of the almost 600 who did not survive, most had died from shark attacks. It was a horror never to be forgotten, but most never talked about it. It was just too horrible. In his book, Out of the Depths, Edgar Harrell wrote these words. The power of mourning was difficult for each of us. On the one hand, our hearts were filled with joy because we had survived. On the other hand, we felt a twinge of guilt 
because we had not met the same fate as our comrades. Competing emotions were only complicated by the difficulties of our own physical and psychological wounds, some far deeper than we could have ever imagined, wounds that would fester for the rest of our lives. On the 40th anniversary of their rescue, there was a reunion. Lieutenant Adrian Marks, the pilot who landed his plane there at sea to begin the rescue, said these words. The memories which surface in my retrospect are not of horror, not of blackness, not of fear. I think of little things, of things as small as honor and courage and simple honesty. Things so small and yet so great that they form the cornerstone of our society. And when I think about these little things, I am humbled by the thought that I have seen true greatness. He went on to talk about the odds of those survivors even being seen. According to his thinking, the chances were not one in a million, more like one in a billion. He went on to say, any sensible person would know that no one can swim for four and a half days in the ocean, and yet you did. For 40 years, I have reflected upon the blind courage and the unbelievable greatness of spirit that I saw when each survivor was brought aboard my airplane, and I have been compelled by the evidence of my own eyes to believe in miracles. Yes, it was a miracle. And just what happened to Edgar Harrell? Mr. Harrell died at age 96. But after the war, he and his wife Ola traveled from church to church, meeting hall to meeting hall, school to school, telling the story, his story, of the wonderful grace and mercy of Almighty God. And of that day in his small little church when he gave his heart to Christ. My thanks to Mr. Harrell for his great service to our nation. And my thanks today to all of our brave Americans who have served and protected our America. Dear Lord, please be with our brave Americans today, both the veterans and those serving now. Be with them. Be with their families. We lift them up to you. Let them know just how thankful we are. And Lord, heal their hearts. Mend those emotional wounds we cannot see and give them peace. Well, that's all the show for today. I'm Jerry Stewart saying goodbye for now. May God bless our veterans. May God bless our nation. And may God bless you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.